The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You're listening to Making Life Brighter on the Health and Wellness Channel, where we provide you with the latest information in healing, consciousness training, and all cutting-edge healing modalities, featuring experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Making Life Brighter will be a forum for healing, inspiring, and uplifting entertainment. Here is your host, Winifred Adams. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams, and today we have a very special treat. I promised you some entertainment this summer, and indeed we have some entertainment. Today I have our special guest, Randy Schoenberg, who is the subject of the movie Woman in Gold, and he is here. Welcome, Randy. It's nice to have you. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. This is a real treat for us because this movie came out recently this spring, and if you all haven't seen it, you must go out and see it. Rent it. It's now available on iTunes worldwide, and you can check it out there. But we have a real special show for you today because not only is Randy the subject of it, but he lived to tell all the things that have gone on in a historical case. And if you don't know anything about this movie, this will be a very entertaining hour for you. So, First of all, Woman in Gold is based on his experience of winning a case where he sued the country of Austria and won in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Tell us how that came about. How did you even get to that point? That's unprecedented. It's a long story because it sort of comes in the middle. Uh, Maria Altman was my grandmother's best friend, and in 1998, she asked me to try to work with her. There had been a new law passed in Austria that allowed... Jewish families like hers uh, or mine to recover artworks that had been stolen during the Nazi period and not properly returned after the war. So we tried to work in Austria, and uh, but the Austrians refused to give the paintings back. They were very valuable. These were paintings owned by Maria's uncle, Ferdinand Blochbauer, and they included very famous two portraits of Maria's aunt, Adele Blochbauer, including the gold portrait of Adele, the woman in gold, uh, which is one of the most famous paintings in the world. So the Austrians were not interested in returning them. And uh, after trying to work on the case for a couple of years at, at a big firm, I decided to leave and go out on my own and file a lawsuit against Austria in the United States. Now, what prompted you to actually file that lawsuit? The movie, the movie actually, well, let me, let me back up a minute. The movie moves along very quickly. Yeah. It actually keeps you going through this whole feeling, and you're in the emotion of it, and then you're in the history of it, and you're feeling it through Maria Altman all the way through, and through your character, which Ryan Reynolds plays, and this is amazing. How is it that you actually came around to deciding that this would be the path that you were going to take for this? Well, I was always looking for ways of keeping the case alive, right? The Austrians had said they didn't want to give back the paintings, and I thought they were they were giving a wrong reason for that. They, they had said that Maria's aunt had willed the paintings to the museum uh, in her will. She died in the 1920s. 
but it seemed to me that the will wasn't really binding, and, and that's not how it was seen by Maria's family in the 20s um, or in the 40s after the war. And so I really thought that, that there was a legal issue on this will that needed to be resolved, but the Austrians wouldn't do it. We tried to sue in Austria, but in Austria you have to pay court costs when you file a lawsuit that are a percentage of the value at stake in the litigation. So in this case, because the paintings were so valuable, Maria Altman would have had to pay almost $2 million just to file a lawsuit in Austria. And, and it was obviously very difficult uh, to, to uh, win a case even on, uh, with all the leg- legal issues in Austria. So she just she couldn't come up with that type of money, and it just didn't seem like a good avenue. And so I started thinking about, well, why can't Maria sue in her home country? She, she had escaped from Austria in 1938. She had come relatively quickly to the United States and ended up in Los Angeles, and she was here uh, when her uncle died, when she became an heir and entitled to these paintings after the war. Uh, why can't she sue in her home country? And so I looked in the, the law books that all lawyers have on their desks that give the rules of, of federal procedure and the various federal statutes. And one of them is called the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976. So you can tell by the title that the general rule is that foreign states are immune from lawsuits. You cannot sue a foreign state in the United States, except, and there are four or five limited exceptions, and one of them says that when property is owned or operated by an agency or instrumentality of a foreign state, and the property was taken in violation of international law, and the agency or instrumentality of the foreign state is engaged in a commercial activity in the United States, then you can sue. And so I parsed that out and thought, well, the paintings were taken by the Nazis. That should be considered in violation of international law. They're now owned or operated by this museum in Austria, which is an agency or instrumentality of the Republic of Austria, a foreign state. And that museum is engaged in commercial activities in the United States. They sell books, they advertise, they have... Uh, U.S. tourist groups that come and use credit, U.S. credit cards, that type of thing. There was you know, enough of a connection that I thought we could satisfy this very, very uh, infrequently used provision. And so I said to Maria, I said, you know, I think we can sue in the United States. So my firm wasn't interested. I, I went out on my own. Actually, our second child was born right then. He's not in the movie, unfortunately. Um, and, then we, uh, and then I filed the lawsuit. It was something like August of 2000. And and it didn't cost two million dollars. It cost like two hundred dollars. And <laughs> and we started off. We didn't know where it would take us, but it, immediately, of course, Austria responded to the lawsuit by trying to dismiss it um, under this Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And that issue went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which took several years. Uh, and the question was, could we rely on this this exception in the law from 1976? in a case that concerned events that took place in the 30s and 40s. So they argued it was impermissibly retroactive. You know, there's sort of a rule against ex post facto laws. You can't make something criminal after someone does it. And, uh, and so that applies in, in the civil context too. But we argued that this, this rule about sovereign immunity was slightly different, that it was more of a jurisdictional question and didn't have to do really with the merits of the case, and therefore it, it should be applied to any case that's brought after 1976. And that issue went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. We had won, actually, in the District Court and the Ninth Circuit, and then the U.S. government actually intervened in the case and argued against us in favor of Austria that the case should be dismissed because they didn't like 
the precedent that we had just set, that you could sue a foreign state. Uh, why didn't they like it? Because all of the foreign countries in the world had written to the State Department saying, what's going on in California? Are we going to be sued for everything that ever happened in our countries? And so the U.S. State Department decided that they would take the other side, the side of the foreign uh, governments, and try to oppose us. What did that do to you in the middle of all this? Because, you know, everything's on the line here, and it keeps being drawn out, and you go over to yeah. Austria, and then you come back. So when that happened, what did you do? Yeah, when Maria was in her late 80s, we had nothing that we could do other than just try to convince whoever was making the decisions uh, that we should win. And so I tried to convince the State Department. It was under the Bush administration. I said, you know, we're right on the law, and this is just the wrong side to be on. She's an American citizen. These are paintings taken in, during the Holocaust from her family. Uh, they just wouldn't listen. And so it went to the Supreme Court, and Austria argued against us. The United States argued against us, and then I got up. And you, there's a scene in the movie, and it's, it's you know, unfortunately probably the truest scene in the movie. and It's almost verbatim what happened. I was uh, asked the very first question. It was actually Justice Souter in the in the movie. They they give it to Justice Rehnquist, but it was Justice Souter, and he asked me this long, convoluted question, and it sounded to me like da 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 like 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 in Snoopy, you know, when you hear the parents, yeah. So so I had no idea, and you can listen to it; it's on tape actually. And I say, um, uh, Your Honor. I don't think I understood the question. Could you please rephrase it? And there are gasps from the audience, you know, like I was a skater who fell on the first jump, you know. <laughs> and uh, But it was actually the best thing that could have happened because all the other justices smiled as if to say, oh, he does that all the time. We didn't understand it either. You know, that was, and so it, they all smiled. It broke and the ice. It broke the ice. It, it established immediately my credibility at the U.S. Supreme Court because – who was I? I was just a kid from Los Angeles representing my grandmother's best friend, trying to convince them we could sue a foreign country to recover paintings that had never left Vienna, you know, and, and were taken 70 years earlier. It was a completely crazy idea, and I wasn't going to BS them. I was just going to try to answer as best I could, and immediately I had that type of credibility. The rest of the argument went like a dream. It was just, it was just the best thing that I ever did, and thank goodness we, we won. We won uh, in the Supreme Court 6-3. Um, wow. What did that feel like? It was amazing. I mean, when, when I got the call, they showed the journalist in the in the film because he actually did tell me we were going to lose. And, and he wrote a big story about how we were going to lose after the argument. And I said to him, what, you know, it wasn't very nice. Well, <laughs> I said, you know, OK, we may lose. Everybody thinks we're going to lose. But can you do me a favor? You find out first. They don't tell the litigants before they release a decision. They just announce it. And the reporters are there in Washington every day. So I said, here's my phone number. Call me when they make a decision. So sure enough. I'm making breakfast for the kids, and the phone rings, and it's this reporter, and he says, "Okay, I got I got the news for you." And I said, "Okay, what is it? You know, how do we lose?" And he said, "No, you won six three. You know, just Justice Stevens." And I, I can't even remember what he said. I was so happy, and I got dressed. I couldn't reach Maria. Her phone was already off the hook. I guess with people calling her, and and I raced over there, and we embraced, and all the her kids. She has four <laughs> kids who aren't in the movie, but everybody was just so happy. And then we looked at each other and realized. What do we just win? Yeah. Nothing. We won nothing. We won the right to start the lawsuit in the United States. So we very quickly came down to earth after that amazing victory in the Supreme but Court. But it did set a precedent, didn't it? Well, it did. It, you know, it's not a very uh, broad precedent, I would say, but, it, but the rule that we set forth in that case is that this law, this Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, 
um, does does apply to every case, no matter when the facts, the underlying facts arose. That's the principle of that case. Uh, but what it allowed us to do then is to go on with the case. And so for the next year and a half, we were in litigation until finally Austria uh, agreed to something I had proposed at the outset, which was that we have an arbitration in Austria to resolve the issue of Maria's aunt Adela's will. Remember, that was the real issue. Did she give the paintings to them or not? Mm -hmm. That was really the whole issue. And I always thought that should be something that we could resolve with Austrian judges in an arbitration. Uh, when it came up, finally... Why, why did you feel that? What was your gut on that? Well, it's Austrian law, so it's going to be easier for Austrians to, to understand it. Uh, the documents are all in German, and... and you know, even Maria's father, who was a lawyer had, and was the executor for Adele, uh, her brother-in-law, um, even he wrote that these requests in her will were not binding in 1926. So I thought, you know, I'm not inventing this argument. This is what the family believed all along. I thought we would, we would have a good chance of winning that. We also had an expert opinion from Professor Rudolf Welser, who was the chairman of the Institute for Civil Law in Vienna, and he was on our side on this question of the will. And I thought that Austrians, the, the way their legal system operates, the professors actually have a lot of authority. It's not like in the United States where the judges have the most authority. In, in European countries, many cases, it's the people who compile the law. The uh, scholars. The, the scholars. Mm -hmm. And he is the, he's the chairman of the Institute for Civil Law at the leading university, the University of Vienna. So I thought it would be very hard for an arbitrator to contradict him. Uh, and I was right uh, about that. But it took actually a lot of convincing of Maria. I mean, the scene in the movie makes it into a fight, which it wasn't. But but I I did have to convince her. She said, you know, why would I want my case to be decided back in Austria? We have these great judges in the United States, right? The Supreme Court loves us, the District Court, the Court of Appeal, everybody loves us. And I said, Maria, you're 89 years old. She was 89 at that time in 2005. And I said, if you want the case decided in your lifetime, we have to take this risk. And and on that note, we'll be right back with more Randy Schoenberg right here talking about the woman in gold and the real happenings behind that movie and all that went into it. It's a phenomenal story, a groundbreaking lawsuit, that, and then arbitration, a win, essentially a win. Woman in gold. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and we'll be right back with more. Making Life Brighter, your health and healing resource. With 20 years of successful healing, medical intuitive Winifred Adams has assisted thousands of people with their health and emotional well-being, including a celebrity clientele. An expert in emotional healing and body system health, Winifred specializes in emotional trauma and hard-to-solve cases. An official guide to John of God, Winifred works with people from all over the world to facilitate optimum health. Visit MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information and a discount off your first session. Appointments available in person or by Skype. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. 
in the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing. We'll explain more about these concepts, as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Health and Wellness Channel, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions or comments, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at makinglifebrighter.com. And now, back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. And we're back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and I'm your host, Winifred Adams. And we have a very special guest here today, Randy Schoenberg, who won the case that the movie Woman in Gold is based on. And we're talking about the case and the arbitration that was going on there after he won in the Supreme Court. So you were discussing the scholars and how they were in your court, and you were convincing Maria that it would be better to go over there and actually complete this in Austria. What kind of opposition did you have, and how did you end up getting to that point? Hmm. Uh, the opposition all the way through was the Austrian government, and uh, they had a, a lawyer who represented the, the state uh, who just was not interested in discussing the case, in resolving it. Uh, we just had, I had offered so many times to sit down with them and talk to them about it and work through it, and they just... They had come up with their decision and said, uh, they even wrote to me in the movie that it's the minister saying it, but she actually wrote to me, uh, if you don't like the decision, go to court, which, by the way, you should never say to a lawyer. <laughs> really big mistake. Um, but, but, you know, that's what I do for a living. So, so when someone writes that, I say, okay, you know, that's a challenge. <laughs> um, but, but that was their attitude, really, was that they would not see the other side, and that well, they that, wanted you to cave, basically. They wanted yeah. you to back down and give up and say, this is enough. She's too old now, and yeah. goodbye. Yeah, I mean, I think they thought they could outlast Maria. I mean, of course, the case was an inheritance case, so it, it could have been brought by Maria's kids or her, her nephew or niece. Um, but but really, having Maria as the main claimant was, was a real um, asset, I think, in the litigation because she was there. She was the one that had seen these pictures in the home for so many years and uh, the last remaining person uh, in her family at that generation. And so, yeah, I think they were in a way trying to drag it out um, really at every stage, the lawyers that they hired in Los Angeles at every single stage, they asked for continuances for extension mm. of time. And I, I had to oppose that at every, every um, Did you ever worry about that and think, gosh, we aren't going to make this? Yeah. I mean, Maria, that was really the part of the main consideration uh, or one of the main considerations when we went into the arbitration. She was 89. Uh, she ended up turning 90, I think, 
four weeks after the decision came out. And, uh, and she was, she ultimately lived to be 94, but she was getting older. Her memory wasn't quite as good, uh, at, already at that time. And, uh, it was a concern for me that, that we needed to do this for her while she was still able to enjoy it. And, uh, and so, so I was constantly pushing it and nevertheless, it took eight years. Yeah. I mean, that is a long time now yeah. when you went over there and actually argued the arbitration, did the speech in the movie mirror what you actually said and how you approached it? And did she show up for that? So the arbitration was a little bit different than in, in the film. Uh, it was private. I was there. Maria was not. Uh, but the speech that they have my character give was actually based on what I wrote in, and gave to the arbitrators. Um, there's this line about there are two Austrias. And uh, that's something that the screenwriter, Alexi K. Campbell, read in something I, I had given him and he liked it and he put it in, in the film. And it was my experience that, and my feeling also that Maria and I, our families, we were Austrian. Our families had lived in Austria for generations. And I think sometimes in, in Austria and, and Germany, they think of the Jews who live there as, as not members of the society, as not citizens. Uh, and, but we were. And so I wanted to make sure that the arbitrators understood that, that, you know, this is not Americans or Jews complaining about Austria. This is Austrians complaining about what Austria has done and that we deserve to be treated uh, in the same way that they would want themselves treated. And so that, that was my experience. And, I, and I, it also um, plays into how they, they dealt with the character of Hubertus Chenin in the film. Uh, Hubertus Chenin was a journalist, really sort of a saint, and, and the person who, who uh, started up all the discussion in Austria of, of Nazi looted paintings uh, in the time frame that, that we were working on this. Um, he, uh, just to give some background, he had been the one that, that disclosed that Austria's president, Kurt Waldheim, had a hidden Nazi past. He had been general secretary of the UN without anybody disclosing mm-hmm. it, and he, he uh, uncovered that. He later wrote the first article uh, in Austria on priest uh, sex abuse case. Wow. And then uh, for, for his trifecta, he, he was the one that uncovered that there were a lot of artworks from Jewish families that had not been properly returned after the war or had been extorted from Jewish families as part of an export procedure that they had after the war. And uh, it's to his, really thanks to him and his efforts that Austria passed a law that allowed us to recover the Klimt paintings because they, in response to his journalism, they enacted a law that said if we have artworks in our federal museums that should have been returned or and weren't or were returned but then extorted away from Jewish families after the war as part of this export permit procedure, we're going to give them back. And it was that law that we used then to recover the Klimt paintings. Uh, so he, he was he, instrumental. He was a, completely his... instrumental and then very helpful all along. Um, he wasn't, you know, he liked to be independent. He was a journalist and he would write things that I really wished he didn't write uh, <laughs> about the case. But, uh, but he wanted to keep that, that professional distance. At the same time, we became very good friends through all of this. What was the serendipity in meeting him? I contacted him. I, when, when Maria hired me, I looked online, which you have to put yourself back in 1998. I don't think the Los Angeles Times had a website yet yeah. in 1998. There was a little bit of stuff online, and I, I ultimately, after a few weeks, found some of the articles that he had written and decided I would contact him and, uh, because he was quoting from documents that we didn't have. 
And Maria had given me documents that I knew he didn't have. And it was really by putting together the documents on both sides uh, of the Atlantic that we that we were able to have a complete story. And so I contacted him saying, you're quoting these documents, can I see them? And actually the Austrians had not allowed him to make copies. So he'd done it all from notes. And we had to send, Maria had to send a letter or a fax over to the archives, allowing him then to make copies. And so once he did, then he sent them to us. Wow. And that's how we first uh, came in contact. Then Maria went to Austria uh, to speak at this at this conference and, and meet with the minister. And uh, Hubert just met her and wrote a whole series of articles. I think it was six or seven that came out every day about Maria and, and her story. And so from then on, we were really really very, very uh, good friends, and he would give me information when he could, uh, and I would give him information when I could, and, uh, you know, he was obviously very much on our side, uh, and and that was really important to us. Uh, it was so difficult doing this case as a young, yeah. completely inexperienced American lawyer. 10, With 000, everything on the line. Right, well, thousands of miles away, uh, and, and to have someone there that I could count on to tell me when things happened when when he heard things uh it really helped it really are you still in contact you know so he passed away right at the end of the case in uh i think may or june of 2006 so uh, he had a terrible disease called mastocytosis and through the eight years i worked on the case he just got sicker and sicker he was 50 years old when he died with three young girls uh, and a wife that he left behind, and uh, really tragic. He actually came to Los Angeles when the paintings came here, and Maria was reunited with them. We had an exhibit That's at the special. L.A. County Museum where Maria and her family all were there together with the paintings for, for the first time, and and he came for that, and he died several weeks later. Really wow. tragic. Wow. Um, but such a guy. it's nice that he was able to come. And, and he saw all be able to be together. Yeah, and well, he's, that he was able to see the end result of the journalism that that he did eight years earlier. It was he really started it off, and uh, and without him, it never would have happened. That is fantastic. So, when you won this arbitration, what did she do? Since she wasn't there in the movie, she's portrayed as being there, and. Um, well, yeah. So the so the arbitration was in September of two thousand five, and then. You know, the filmmakers had to decide, should they keep everybody in the theater for four months and make it exactly how it was, or do they put it all in one scene? So, of course, it's all in one scene, but the decision didn't come immediately. It came uh, by email in, oh. in January 2006. <laughs> I, I was coming back from a, it's sort of a funny story, I was coming back from a, a neighborhood poker game where I had lost and feeling dejected, and I looked on my BlackBerry. Of course, a lawyer has to have a BlackBerry. And there's this <laughs> message from the arbitrators because it was 9 a.m. Monday morning there, and it was midnight on Sunday here in Los Angeles. And and so I raced to the computer because you can't read anything on the BlackBerry and, and you know, opened up this decision. And I don't know if, you, if your listeners will know German, but in German, it's, the sentences are like super long, sometimes a paragraph or a page long, and the verb is at the end. So it took a while for me to, to figure out this, this decision, what had actually happened. But finally, when I, I saw it, uh, I realized, oh, my goodness, we won. All three arbitrators, the one they picked, the one we picked, and the neutral one that those two picked, all three of them agreed with the argument that we had made all along, which was that the will of Adele Blochbauer, the woman in the picture, Maria's aunt, was was not binding on her her husband her her husband Ferdinand was the owner of the paintings 
he did not will them to the museum when he died because when he died in Switzerland in 1945, shortly after the war ended, uh, he had not returned to Austria. He had not recovered any of his property. It had all been taken away. So his will just said, my property, my claims to my property go to my two nieces and nephews. So they were the heirs, the owners of the paintings. And after the war, uh, the, the Maria and her sister and, and brother, their, their lawyer in Vienna, essentially traded the Klimt paintings in order to get other paintings out of the country. He gave up on them, and, and we had that very well documented because he wrote to his clients the day after the meeting and said, I decided we're not going to go after the Klimt paintings, and I hope with that to get their agreement to get these other parts of the collection out of the country, and that, that worked. Uh, but it was wow. after Hubertus Trenin's articles that Austria agreed that that was really a very extortionate and unfair procedure to make Jewish survivors have to uh, leave paintings in Austrian museums in order to get other things out. And so when they decided to reverse that, they enacted a law, which meant that the Klimt paintings had to be returned. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, we'll be right back with more Randy Schoenberg right here, and we're talking about the movie Woman in Gold. You can find it on iTunes worldwide, and if you haven't had a chance to see it in a theater, it might be still in a theater near you somewhere. It's a fantastic movie, and you won't regret it. This is a piece of history right here, and it's a well-made movie. It's an amazing movie and very, very moving. So check it out. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio. Journey to John of God for healing with your guide, medical intuitive Winifred Adams. Experience healing with the world's most revered transmedium, John of God. Witness incredible healings, visit the sacred waterfall, and experience the heart-opening wonders of the Casa de Dominacio in Brazil. For more information, visit MakingLifeBrighter.com. Tune in and visit the archived shows to learn of the miraculous healing with John of God. Special offer when you mention you heard it on the Health and Wellness Channel. See the website for details, www.MakingLifeBrighter.com. Are you ready for a real, fact-based show about alternative and natural approaches to health? Listen for Live Healthy, Be Healthy with Drs. Jim and Janine Fox. We're not about the latest health fads. We're about proven methods from real patients and real situations. Each week's show is an eye-opening look behind the scenes of real health. Live Healthy, Be Healthy can be heard live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. How is your health? Do you want to know more about it? Every day there are new technologies, procedures, and healing techniques coming forward. To understand them, tune in to Speaking of Health with Dr. Michael Cudlis. Our guests come from different backgrounds in the fields of health and healing. We'll discuss new realities and modalities, from chiropractic to metagenics. It's all designed to improve your quality of life. Speaking of Health is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Health and Wellness Channel. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions, comments, or would like to make an appointment with medical intuitive Winifred Adams, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at makinglifebrighter.com. 
Making Life Brighter, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. Now, back to the show with your host, Miss Winifred Adams. And we're back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio. Today, we have a very special series we're talking about. The Woman in Gold, and Randy Schoenberg, the lawyer that won the case against the Austrian government to reunite Maria Altman with the Klimt paintings, is here with us today, and we're discussing that case in depth. Now, Randy, you were talking about the arbitration and all, but let's talk some things that are personal. Now, Helen Mirren and Ryan Reynolds did a fantastic portrayal of these real-life stories that came through, and they really were emotional that he was showing how you were emotional in Austria and how she was sort of emotional. And, you know, it was hard for her to go back. So let's talk a little bit about what happened for real. Yeah, well, so much of the movie is really absolutely true, or at least based on the truth. Obviously, they changed things a little bit to, to fit it in a in 100 minutes. But, uh, but, you know, what Maria and her husband Fritz went through is very much... It, perhaps even more frightening than how it's portrayed in the film. Uh, those scenes from the Anschluss of what, what happened to Jews in Austria uh, when the Nazis took over are, were actually verbatim quotes, if you want to call it that, of actual photographs and documentary footage. So when you see the people scrubbing or painting, if you know the pictures, you recognize it immediately because it's identical. Uh, what they don't say in the film, because they just didn't have enough time, is that Maria's husband, Fritz, was sent to Dachau, Wow. Uh, they had been married just right before the Nazis came in. Maria was just 22 years old, and a few months later, her husband was sent to uh, one of the main concentration camps in Germany, Dachau, and he was held there until his older brother was able to ransom him out, uh, which was still possible in 1938. A year later, it would not have been possible. But his older brother had escaped and and had raised enough money and sent it back into Germany that they let Fritz out, but they still kept him under house arrest Fritz actually wrote up uh, this story, as did his brother Bernard, so we know pretty much exactly what happened um, from his perspective, and then also Maria, who, who told me. Um, they tried to escape three times before they finally succeeded. You, you, you see their escape in the, in the film, and it's really one of the most frightening parts of the film, uh, but they actually had tried three times earlier and failed, didn't get caught, and finally came up with a, a story about a, uh, a dentist appointment, and uh, it, which is similar to what happens in the film. And very much like that, they escaped out the back. They got to the airport. The plane was delayed. Uh-huh. Uh, they actually flew to Germany. What you don't see in the film is when they got to northern Germany, um, they had to then make their way to the border with Holland. They were supposed to meet someone. That person didn't arrive. They actually got to, to the border, and a, a, a priest helped them cross the border, a Dutch priest. He was later captured and executed for helping people escape. Um, they had to avoid the Dutch because the Dutch were treating re- fleeing Jews like like we talk about illegal aliens. They were sending them back, capturing them and sending them back. So they had to evade the Dutch border patrols and ultimately um, made it to uh, to Amsterdam, where they flew then to England and to safety. That's where Fritz's brother uh, had had landed. And so uh, it really was just as terrible as you see in the film. And what happened to Maria's family that she left behind and her extended family, her uncle and all that? Yeah, so her uncle managed to escape uh, first to Czechoslovakia where he had an estate that was confiscated and actually his his home, his summer home was used as the home for Reinhard Heydrich. He's the one, 
he's called the architect of the final solution. He's the one that held the Vanze conference. He was living in Ferdinand's home at the time of that. Uh, Ferdinand then fled to Switzerland and lived there through the end of the war. Maria's sister uh, escaped to Yugoslavia, to Croatia. Um, she and her husband and two kids survived the war in hiding. Uh, at the end of the war, though, her husband was captured by the communists and then executed for being a capitalist. Wow. She then fled to Israel and then to Vancouver, Canada, where Maria's uh, three older brothers also ended up. Uh, Maria's father died uh, and, uh, before fleeing, and her mother actually made it out also. Um, and a similar story to my own family. My grandparents all fled the Nazis. My uh, father's parents, the Schoenbergs, were in Berlin in 1933, and they, they escaped almost immediately in May of 1933. Uh, my mom's parents, Eric and Trudit Seisel, uh, who were the ones that were good friends with Maria and Fritz Altman, uh, they actually left miraculously on the day after the famous Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass, which is November 9th and 10th, uh, that evening in 1938, where the Nazis burned down all of the synagogues in Germany and Austria, or almost all of them, uh, and started arresting people. They escaped the very next day. So all of our families have these sort of miraculous stories of escape. You wouldn't, you couldn't have escaped without a miracle. So really every, every one of these stories has that same character, but of course each one is, is different. And how, uh, how did you take that when you went back there? So when I when I go back to Austria, it's it's interesting for me because my family, my grandparents were all from Austria. So I feel like I've inherited at least something of that, and and feel like that culture from Austria. My grandfathers were both composers, uh, famous both, composers. Well, Arnold Schoenberg, very famous. <laughs> Eric Zeisel, a little less, but also very important. And and so in my family growing up, Austrian culture was was our culture. So I don't feel like it's a foreign thing. Uh, but when I go back, I do have a, a strange feeling of of being exiled from my own home in a, a way. Bittersweet. Almost. Yeah. Even though my parents were born here, I'm, I'm the next generation down, but I feel like that should have been my country. Did you feel when you did this case that you expected them to welcome you back in as a relative and now time has passed? Did you think no, they would be kinder to you? I mean, again, they're two Austrias. They're people who are super nice. And very friendly, and because my grandfather is very famous, they know who I am and where I come from, and treat me with great respect and and warmth. And then they're the people that you know. They're, the old ju- they're, they're just like they were in the 1930s and 40s. They'd be on the wrong side if the Nazis were still there. They just have that same demeanor and, and she, attitude. She spoke about that. You know, Helen Mirren's character playing Maria Altman, she spoke to that idea of truth. And I thought that was one of the most poignant moments of the whole film. And she turns around and basically is saying to you, you know, they ruined my people and there were people that supported these people. This is, this is not the truth. Let me tell you the truth. Right. Right. I think every family that has this type of story, it's not the typical Holocaust story. I think that's what, what is making the film so interesting to people. It's not the concentration camp Auschwitz uh, type of story. It's a different type of story. It has to do with people who escaped for the most part. And, uh, and that, but there's that sense of loss uh, that they have also that is very real. And, and, uh, and everybody I met from that generation had it. They had this, uh, 
this love of their homeland, right? My grandmother had studied to be a lawyer in Vienna. She was in her 30s when she fled, and she couldn't be not Austrian. That's just who she was. She was fully formed. Uh, and there was this sadness when she when she returned. Uh, I told that to the to the screenwriter Alexi Campbell, and he put that really into Maria's character. She has this one line where she, she she says, "I'll never forgive them for not letting me live there." And that that's something my grandmother said to me when I, she took me as a teenager to Austria, uh, and I, I I wrote it down and I remembered it because it just it's it really, yeah it's really deep. really struck me that 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 even as a as a seventy year old. Uh, even 40 years later, she just felt like like she had been ripped away from from what she loved, and uh, and so that there's that sort of sadness, and and yet they had this. My grandmother and Maria had this incredible warmth and friendliness and elegance and culture and uh, and wit. It's just almost indescribable. Uh, you know, Helen Mirren does such a good job of of playing Maria, but Maria was just a unique character. Uh, they have a lot of things in common, right? They're both very beautiful and very uh, strong women, very stately, uh, <laughs> uh, very witty and charming if they want to be and flirtatious when they want to be. Maria and Helen Mirren are just, you know, two peas in the pod in that respect. Uh, Did you speak with um, Helen? Did you get to talk with the actors and, I, I, and I, really I, consult I, with them on this? I didn't uh, talk to them until until the filming was was started, I met Helen Mirren in, in Vienna briefly, and she was so charming, just as you would expect, and really nice. And she said she watched the deposition of Maria Altman, which I put on YouTube, and uh, and you got to know that no one ever watches lawyer depositions. <laughs> so to have Helen Mirren say that she watched the deposition was just like unbelievable to me. Uh, but she really enjoyed that because I had asked Maria all these questions, historical questions, and it really became a good source. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, I didn't meet until the, really the last day of shooting, which I totally understood. You know, if yeah. when when you're playing a character, the last thing you want is for someone else to come along a little bit different how, than how you envisioned the character and sort of mess things up. Ryan Reynolds had to play me, but he had to play it as yeah. as himself. He had to be that character. Uh, he's not a mimic, right? He's not trying to to um, imitate my voice or imitate. Uh, my mannerisms. He's trying to play a character, and and he had to embody the character. So I met him at on the last day, and I, they had invited me. It was here in Los Angeles, and I was dressed in sort of you know khakis and a blue Oxford shirt. And I came down to the to where they were filming, and they finished the scene. And he comes over to me, and he looks at points at me and points to him. He's wearing the exact same thing, and he says. Nailed it, right? He he was dressed exactly <laughs> like me, and whatever they did in wardrobe, it was it was me. Uh, my 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 uh, siblings were joking because one of the British tabloids called it geek chic. And, uh, I definitely heard the geek part before, but never chic applied to me. So he he definitely elevated me in the eyes of of, of the public. But uh, anyways, really, he was also super nice and very very. Um, um, interested in in what i thought about the character uh that he was playing and uh and i think he did a great job I, it's it was not easy it's not easy to play someone else a living person uh and embody that person in a in a movie where you have to convey everything about them in a short period of time in just a few scenes and i think he did a, just a great job and i think helen mirren and tatiana maslani and all of, really all of the actors i thought were just Incredible. This is a brilliant historical piece. Truly, it is, and it portrays you very, very well. And in terms of 
the whole of the story. Now, there obviously are differences from, you know, the true story and then what film needs to do. But this is a moving piece. I really encourage you all to go and check out this movie. You can rent it on iTunes worldwide. And we'll be back with more Randy Schoenberg right here on Making Life Brighter. If you need to look up this archive, you can go to makinglifebrighter.com and go to the radio tab. And all of it is on the player. So you can listen to it again and again. I urge you to go see this movie. We'll be right back with more Making Life Brighter. Making Life Brighter, your health and healing resource. With 20 years of successful healing, medical intuitive Winifred Adams has assisted thousands of people with their health and emotional well-being, including a celebrity clientele. An expert in emotional healing and body system health, Winifred specializes in emotional trauma and hard-to-solve cases. An official guide to John of God, Winifred works with people from all over the world to facilitate optimum health. Visit MakingLifeBrighter.com for more information and a discount off your first session. Appointments available in person or by Skype. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday at 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Journey to John of God for healing with your guide, medical intuitive Winifred Adams. Experience healing with the world's most revered transmedium, John of God. Witness incredible healings, visit the sacred waterfall, and experience the heart-opening wonders of the Casa de Dominacio in Brazil. For more information, visit MakingLifeBrighter.com. Tune in and visit the archived shows to learn of the miraculous healing with John of God. Special offer when you mention you heard it on the Health and Wellness Channel. See the website for details, www.MakingLifeBrighter.com. Welcome back to Making Life Brighter with Winifred Adams on the Health and Wellness Channel, the preferred choice for conscious education and entertainment. For more information, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. If you have questions or comments, please email us at radio at makinglifebrighter.com. That's radio at makinglifebrighter.com. And now, back to the show with your host, Winifred Adams. We're back. You're listening to Making Life Brighter Radio, and today we have Randy Schoenberg here, and we're talking about the movie Woman in Gold because it's based on his life. And I'd like to go into the artwork about this movie since the whole movie is about the woman in gold. What is the woman in gold? The woman in gold is uh, a name that's used for the portrait of Adele Blochbauer. That's uh, Maria Altman's aunt. She's the my client in the film, and uh, Adele and Klimt, uh, actually had a long relationship because Klimt did two pictures of Adela, two full-length pictures. There's the portrait, uh, number one, the gold portrait, and then there's uh, a second standing portrait. Uh, I think she's the only sitter that had two full-length portraits by Klimt. 
uh, and there, you have to know, Klimt was really the most famous artist of his time in Vienna, uh, most expensive artist too. And he wasn't Jewish, but actually most of his, his major patrons were Jewish. Um, the Blochbauers, the later Zucker Candles, those three families bought about 30 of, wow. of his hundred or so major artworks uh, during that time between 1900 and when he died in 1918. So uh, he, they were Where really are those his support. Paintings? Where uh, are they there? Well, the paintings are all over the place. Some were destroyed in the war. Uh, others are still in the Austrian gallery in Vienna. Uh, and uh, and the one, the woman in gold, is now in the Neue Gallery in New York. It was purchased after uh, it was recovered by Maria and her family. They sold it to Ronald Lauder to put on permanent display in the Neue Gallery, uh, and for a while it was the most expensive painting in the world, uh, which is a crazy thing to say, but it's... How it's, expensive it, is it? It's... <laughs> Allegedly, it was uh, $135 million wow. uh, that he paid. That's, that's what they Did say. Did he use gold on it, or uh, is it just painted gold? It's, it's actual uh, gold leaf that's mm-hmm. used. It, it looks like an icon, and I think Klimt realized that this was going to be um, a, big, a big work. Uh, many people are familiar with The Kiss by Klimt. It, that's probably on every other dorm room wall right. in the United States. That's maybe his most famous painting, and it was done around the same time as the portrait of Adele Blochbauer. Now, Klimt, um, besides being the most expensive and famous painter of his day, a hundred years ago in Vienna, um, he liked to paint in a long smock with nothing on underneath. And uh, <laughs> he had lots of nude models hanging around. And when he died, there were 18 illegitimate kids wow. uh, who, who came out of the woodworks. And so everybody, everybody speculated that, oh, he must have had something going on with Adele, too, who she sat for him for so many uh, so many times, but uh, there's no proof of that, obviously, and so we're, we're just left to speculate. What did Maria say about that? <laughs> Maria said that she asked her mother one time, and her mother, who is Adela's sister, uh, said, oh, ridiculous, they had an intellectual friendship, and Maria said, well, my mom would have said that even if it wasn't <laughs> just an intellectual friendship, <laughs> mm-hmm. so Maria had her suspicions, but we'll, we'll really never know. Um, Adela was according to Maria and the, and the things that, that Adele left behind, a very intellectual, uh, sometimes serious woman. Uh, Maria said she would have absolutely been a lawyer or a politician or someone at that level uh, had she lived in a different time. But she was married off to Ferdinand, who was much older. Uh, her, her older sister had married Ferdinand's older brother. So two boys named Bloch married two girls named Bauer. They combined their name to make it fancy, Bloch Bauer. Uh, and so Adela was married off to this older sugar baron, Ferdinand, and I think she, uh, she tr- they tried to have children but, but were unsuccessful, and so she, they collected artworks, and they had these in Klimt's, and they had dozens of other Austrian paintings, and they had the largest collection of antique porcelain in Central Europe, of over 300 settings. Wow. Yeah, where would you put that, right? Yeah. I mean, you, well, they you, had a big house. They had a big house, you can imagine. <laughs> uh, and they had they had the beautiful house in Vienna. They had a beautiful estate uh, outside of Prague. And she really became uh, the leader of a salon, what they what they call a salon, which is that she would entertain. The and ladies she would come and... Not just ladies. She would invite the artists and intellectuals, mm. people like Klimt or Richard Strauss or writers like uh, Schnitzler or Hofmannsthal. They came to parties at the Blochbauers constantly, and she would surround herself with these intellectuals, 
and artists and uh, and really sort of feel a part of that and um, and she supported them. Uh, she was also very civic minded uh, in her will. She left uh, bequests to the orphans and the workers society. She was a little bit of a socialist, although very wealthy. And uh, and she was just very, very much committed to social causes, which I think makes her a very interesting modern woman for her time. And to for her to have become this icon now of the the sort of the beginning of the 20th century in Vienna, this this cultural time period where you had not just Klimt, but my grandfather, Arnold Schoenberg, is revolutionizing music. You have Wittgenstein, who's doing the same in philosophy. You have Sigmund Freud, who's doing the same in psychoanalysis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, she, she, she embodies now that period for us. And that's why her painting is really the most famous painting from that time. Do you ever go and look at it there? I was there. I hadn't been for a while and I was there after the premiere and it's just, it's just a stunning painting. It looks like, I think it was intended to look like a Byzantine icon. Uh, What do you feel when you look at that? You did this. What do you feel? (sighs) You know, I, for me, I have a long history with it because I remember going as a kid when I was early teen to that museum and my mom telling me, you know, your grandmother's friend Maria, that's her aunt Adela Blochbauer. So I, I remember the picture and remember this sort of unusual name, right, at the time. Uh, and now I see it, you know, 40 years later and 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 I had something to do with its yeah, history. It's, it's really now. it's really an amazing, amazing thing. I, I pinch myself every time I have to think about the whole story. I can't imagine, truly. I mean, so what happened in the necklace? Uh, so in the in the film, it says, true story, Maria got a necklace from her uncle. It actually isn't wasn't identical to the one in the painting, but it was solid diamonds. And uh, and Maria said that they found out after the war that it was given to Hermann Goering's wife. Uh, and they never recovered it. Now, since the film came out, people have sent me things about Hermann Goering's wife's jewelry collection, which was apparently recovered by the allies like the monuments men uh i'm not sure which which one uh might have been maria's she's no longer here to identify it but probably it was just broken up at the end of the war and used as currency did she get any other jewelry that came from that time frame or that period did she recover anything else well her story was that when the gestapo came to the house and asked for her jewelry around the time they were arresting Fritz, she was so scared that she told them that the necklace was at the jeweler's. Um, He was cleaning it or keeping it for safekeeping. So they went to the jeweler and picked it up. And for whatever reason, the jeweler didn't give the matching earrings uh, to the Gestapo. So Maria actually escaped with those matching earrings. I saw them. They were like, like rocks, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I don't know how many carrots that would be, but whatever you're thinking in your head, triple it. Okay, that was the size of the earrings. And she said the necklace, they were even bigger. So uh, that that she did have and, and, uh, and was able to bring out and enjoy for the rest of her life. This must be just so amazing for you to realize and to see this movie come out and have it all put together. It's almost like a proper closure to the entire ordeal, which was a bit of an ordeal for a while, but then... A triumph. Yeah, I think for me the happiest moment was when the paintings were all here in Los Angeles at the L.A. County Museum. Uh, Stephanie Barron, the curator there, had put together in a matter of weeks uh, an exhibit, and Maria was there with with her niece, you know, her nephews, her her uh, four kids, her six grandkids, um, just the whole extended you family. It yeah, all in one room with these paintings, which had started out in one room. You know, I want to speak. In two seconds here to your courage. That's what I gathered from this film. Your belief, 
your trust in yourself and your courage. And I think that's coming through in the film and, and people need to see this. Really, they need to see. Where can they read more about what you've written? So there's a great book written by Anne-Marie O'Connor. She was a journalist at the LA Times who covered the case, and it's called Lady in Gold. So the film is Woman in Gold, and the book is called Lady in Gold. I recommend the book very highly. She did an excellent job, and it has a lot more details, obviously. And do you have writings or blogs or anything you do? I I've I write about things all the time. I put some of the stuff on a blog called Churn Blog, S-C-H-O-E-N-B-L-O-G, I do a lot of genealogy. You can look for me on genie.com, but uh, I haven't written my book yet, and maybe I will. You must. Thank you so much for being here. Now, I have one question I ask everybody. What makes your life brighter? What makes my life brighter is my wife and kids. Uh, I'm just so lucky to have all of them. I was just away for a week, and you come back, and you see your family, and uh, there's nothing else like it. I'm very lucky. Randy Schoenberg, everybody. Woman in gold. You need to go out and rent it, buy it, see it. Educate yourself. This is groundbreaking history. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. We'll be right back next week with more, and we'll have an interview with John of God live. Thank you for listening to Making Life Brighter on the Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to join us each week at 10 a.m. for information, inspiration, and education with leading experts in healing and consciousness. For more information and a complete show schedule, please visit us at makinglifebrighter.com. Making Life Brighter, successfully helping you feel better from the inside out. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.